Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I was trying to have a career because I wanted to give my mother the life I felt that she deserved, but she didn't have. Right. And so everything about like why I wanted to be successful wasn't really for me. It's because I wanted to give my mother a better life. My name is Detavio Samuels and welcome to the Black Print, where I sit with the innovators, disruptors and change makers. My guests open up about every step of their journey and share lessons learned along the way to provide creators, entrepreneurs, and executives with a tangible blueprint for navigating to the top of their industry. This is The Black Print. Welcome to The Black Print. I open up every show the same way by saying my favorite quote. Everybody sees you on the mountaintop. Not everybody sees you on the climb. This is the show where we have a conversations with the disruptors, the innovators, the change makers, and we talk about their climb to the top. And so I never want to introduce my guests. I always allow them to introduce themselves. And I'm going to say, introduce yourself with some swagger. Again, I know black people, we don't like to brag about ourselves. I'm like, nah, go brag, go get yours. <laughs> and so if you could please, Queen, tell the people who you are. Absolutely. My name is Savitra Wilson. I'm a founder, tech founder, I have a company called Resilia. We raised over $50 million, you know, humble brag. One of the largest rounds of a solo black woman here in Louisiana and in the South and really ever, right? $50 million, not bad. Uh, $50 million is not bad. $50 million is impossible. If you go Google the number of black people who have raised $50 million, I'd be surprised if you can count them on one hand, maybe two, right? So this is a very unique thing. Yes. And I also bootstrapped the company Solid Ground Innovations from zero to seven figures when I was 22. Based here in New Orleans, born and bred Louisiana, Southern girl. Beautiful. Thank you. And so we're going to go, we know where you are and what you've done. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Tell me a little bit about like what childhood life was like for you. What was it like growing up? So I grew up with my grandmother, my mother in a single household. Uh, My father passed when I was around seven years old. Um, And so although I grew up in a labor of love, it was one of me being a first generation college student, me growing up in the backwoods of Louisiana on a gravel road, right? But my mother, although she had never went to college, nor had my father, they always pressed upon us education, right? Whether I'm getting educated by someone like you or my teacher or whomever, it was always about this collective of individuals around us educating us on how to be a better version of ourselves. And so regardless of how much we had or did not have, right, as a first-generation college student, I always had that knowledge or insight to want to be curious, um, come from very small town, very humble beginnings. You know, we had one small library where the computers, if you still go there, probably 20 years old, right? So we didn't have access to a lot. I didn't come from a large urban city, although I would ultimately move to New Orleans where my other family was. But truly, 
born and bred in the country. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have two questions off of that introduction. The first one I want to go to is you mentioned you talked about your father mm-hmm. and losing him at a very young age. For a lot of people, that could have been the end of the story. Yes. Um, so my question for you is why was that not the end of your story? Why do you still end up here given you must have had such a traumatic experience at such a young age? Yeah, so, you know, for me, I grew up around a lot of family and not only did I lose my father at a young age, I would also lose my mother a little bit later. And so first, not having someone that was like in that father figure, although I had my uncles and others, I had this belief that, okay, I'm going to figure it out, right? I'm going to take what I know, what people are exposing me to and just figure it out. Um, As I would matriculate through college, my mother would get diagnosed with stage four cancer um, and she would pass away four days before Christmas, right? And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm in college. I, I lost my, my father at this point. Um, I lose my mother. I was my first semester of grad school. And I'm like, all the work that I had done up until that point, I'm trying to get through college. I'm taking like 18, 19 hours. I was trying to have a career because I wanted to give my mother the life I felt that she deserved, but she didn't have. Right. And so everything about like why I wanted to be successful wasn't really for me, it's because I wanted to give my mother a better life. Mm. And so that was kind of taken away from me and I had to recalibrate like, okay, well, what am I doing all this for now? How did you recalibrate? Because I think um, I lo- uh, it's so true for so, many of, for so many of us. It's all about like, what is that motivation factor? What is your why? You lost your why along the way. Mm-hmm. How do you recover from that? How did you recalibrate from that? Yeah, and I lost it early, right? And during those critical years when you're trying to already figure out life. But I started thinking about, okay, what do I want my legacy to be? And it's when I'm like, you don't even know really what a legacy is just yet. But I was like, what do I want to do? And I was exposed to something um, because I was working at CASA. I don't know if you ever heard of a nonprofit called um, CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocate. So you're working with children who are in out of foster care. Now, a fact is that although the majority of foster foster children are black boys, the majority of volunteers are actually white women, right? And so I got the opportunity to actually lead a campaign uh, that will allow me to partner with some of my friends and former classmates at LSU who had gone on to play professional ball. And so I was like, look, y'all black men, y'all got black mamas, y'all going to come together and we're going to create this campaign around you all to advocate for more black volunteers and particularly black male volunteers who can be um, CASA parents, right, to these children. And they did. They stepped up and they were like, where do we need to be? And that actually propelled me to start my first company, Solid Ground Innovations. Let's talk about it. So what was the very first company you started and at what age were you? So I was 22. Um, I had just lost my mother. Maybe like a couple of months, a year had passed at this point. And I launched Solid Ground Innovations to the public really based on the opportunity, right, to work with athletes and other individuals in the philanthropic space. So I was working with individuals who generally wanted to do good. They just didn't know how to do good. And I would come in and I would help them not only start their foundations, but I would help them 
really create a strategy around the work they were doing. So we worked with everyone from like Ward Dunn to Lolo Jones to Tyrus Thomas to Garrett. I mean, like we had any anybody that came out of Louisiana that went on to play professional ball, they kind of went through SGI uh, because we were kind of known for getting the job done and ensuring that things were on up and up. So double click into that because um, you become the gateway, right? You're saying anybody who came out of Louisiana, like we were the gateway for them. Can you be more explicit about what did it take to become the gateway? What did it take to become known to be that company that did X, Y, and Z for athletes and for performers? Yeah, so for me, people have always asked me, how, what do you think has been really the key to your success? And I was like, I know how to execute. Like someone can give me an idea and a vision and I could take that vision, I could think it through. I could be like, okay, I need this, I need this person. I, I know this person, I know this venue, et cetera. I connect the dots and I can execute. Mm -hmm. And people started seeing that. And then that person referred the next person, the next person, the next person. And then my company began to grow. But that's not actually what took my company to the next level. Mm -hmm. Hit me. Come okay, on. Okay, so don't keep it going. <laughs> so I'm in a community. I'm working with all these organizations, with athletes, with nonprofits, you name it. And then um, Edna Better Health. So everybody knows Edna Better Health. You might even have it as your coverage. They were coming into Louisiana um, via their Medicaid. So they were about to provide Medicaid throughout the state of Louisiana. Now they're in Phoenix, Connecticut, their main headquarters. And a woman just, she's looking at all of the small businesses, the disadvantaged businesses, and we had a certification um, that only businesses in our area could actually have, right? And so she reached out to me and she was like, oh, we're about to put out this proposal. We're gonna do requests for bids. And so she was like, you should, you should apply. And I was like, okay, well, let me look at it. I was like, okay, this is like a big deal. And I know there's gonna be so many others in competing for it that were much larger than my company. Um, but she saw through all of that. And what she really wanted was an organization, a company that was grounded in the community. And that was a multi-year, multi-million dollar contract that changed the trajectory of SGI. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Mm -hmm. So I know there's a couple of things. There's um, some quote by somebody you may know that I'm not going to get their name right. But it's like ideas are 1% inspiration, 99% execution, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're like, I live in that execution world and I do that extraordinarily well. I think often as a community, because we are so creative and because we're so innovative, we can get lost in like idea after idea after idea yes. after idea. And what you had was what I see in you as a person who had an idea and then executed the hell out of that thing. Yeah. The other thing that I hear um, is the ways that we, as we're building companies, have to learn to differentiate those businesses from everybody else. And so part of it, it sounds like it starts with this like designation or this certification. Um, but then it also goes to the work that you were doing. She wanted someone who was grounded in the community and like that separates you from so many other people. Um, uh, all of those things like I, I love in the story. 
one piece that I want to get to is one of the things that's hard for black people, and we just talked about it with Bet on Black, this idea that black entrepreneurs never get funding. We get like 1% of VC money. We get loans at a completely lower rate than everybody else. Like it's difficult for us to raise capital. Um, if I could change one thing about Revolt in this moment right now is that I would have a massive war chest to go do the work that we want to do. So my question to you is for the for this first company, What's the story around capital? Did you raise capital? If so, how? If not, then you really got to tell me how you got it done. Yeah, so I'm going to tell you how it happened, but then I'm going to tell you why I needed capital, to your point, for my second company. So with Solid Ground Innovations, I started it just one woman show. Then I started hiring people over time when we started securing larger contracts. But earlier on, I was going out, didn't know anyone, didn't have the network, no one knew me. But one thing I always remembered was, and even in school, just going to ask for conversations, right? Reaching out to people and just being authentic and genuine and saying, can I take some of your time, right? And where I started was, was actually public servants. So what I realized was, okay, here are these public servants, these council people, these uh, politicians who generally are supposed to right, be in service to you all. And so I would reach out to their handlers, to them directly. And I was like, oh, I would really love to meet you and sit down and have a conversation. And you know, I would touch on something about their history or something that really stood out to me about them. And they was like, okay, you know, I got 30 minutes. We can sit down and talk. And so we would. Now, here's the thing about talking to politicians as a first-time business owner. They know where all the money is, right? Because they have to raise money consistently to get reelected. And so they were able to tell me who was who in the community, who owned what, who was the highest paid grossing attorney, law firms, you know, who I needed to go meet Mr. Joe Del Pitt, who has one of the longest running restaurants. And I did. I took their advice, took notes, and then I would go and reach out to those people. And I began to do marketing services, advertising services for them. And I started building my company authentically on that. When we secured the Edna Better Health contract, that would take us to the next level and would open up more doors for us to compete for other contract opportunities. But our margins were low. We were able to really, truly build a bootstrap company without ever having to raise capital. Yeah, super impressive. Um, again, pretty much impossible to be able to pull that off. So um, congratulations on that. In that story is a story about like the power of networking. Um, the wrong time to start building your network is when you actually need it. Like you should be building your network along the way. I think there's this also this incredible piece that you just dropped, which was like um, my way in the door. I did my research. I learned about them. I had those conversations and that's what got me in the door. And then the cheat code, which is like, what's the path to the money, right? I can go network with a thousand people, but if I can network with five people who can show me the path to the hundred people like is, is, is brilliant. Now, what we know about SGI is that's not where your story starts um, because you've gone on to start other companies. So what makes you decide that it is time for you to step down at SGI? So for Solid Ground, I bootstrapped it. But one key thing that I realized when I started Resilia and the reason why I needed to step down from SGI to build it is because technology was a whole different animal, right? And so I was seeing all these different new software, these apps was being disrupted by technology in so many ways. And I was like, okay, either I can be a disruptor, or I'm continuing to get disrupted, mm. right? Either I can be a builder, 
or a consumer mm -hmm. of this. I had no technical background, right? Don't, don't know how to code to this day, but I really believe that this was a space that if I figured out how to maneuver, figured out how to connect the dots again, that I would be successful in. Now, I did. I was not successful for a long time starting out, and I had to really maneuver and figure it out. And we talk about like being a first-generation college student, not growing up in Silicon Valley or any tech ecosystem. It was like bare bones. Like there was no example around me of anyone building a tech company, and definitely no one raising capital in the South for a tech company. So I left SGI because I knew that I need to be fully committed. I remember one of my engineers at the time telling me, all right, if you're going to do it, you have to invest all of your time in doing it right. And that is why I stepped down from SGI. One of the common themes on the black print um, is this idea, like I always use the quote, you can't water all plants with the same bucket of water, otherwise they'll all die. And so many of the people who have found their way to being successful have found ways. Devon Franklin talks about like, first you build the tree, like, and you get rooted and you get deep. And then that tree will then allow you to produce the branches that you can spin off. And so what I see in you is, again, another story of I saw a market opportunity. I saw another idea, but I had to say... This one needs 100% of my time. This one needs 100% of my attention. And you had already built a tree that you could jump off of. You talked a lot about um, uh, the challenges, and I want to dive a little bit deeper into that. But you talked about you know, coming from the backwoods, having no black print or blueprint. What gave you the confidence to say... It doesn't matter that I haven't seen a black woman do this in tech. It doesn't matter that, you know, people aren't raising the type of money that I know I'm going to need to raise to, to fund this dream. I believe I can go. Like, what gave you the confidence yeah. to chase that dream? I mean, truly, for better or for worse, I just had this mentality that I won't be denied. Right. It's like the statistics, everything says that, oh, you can't do this. Right. Nobody's ever done this before. And I'm like, OK, bet I'm going to go do that. Um, I love that. And I love that. Like, I love it for, I hope like our generation and the generations, like I'm like, at some point in time, we have to decide that we are the generations that are going to change things. I don't care whether you are spiritual or not. Like this idea, the Bible talks about like there are things, generational curses. And at some point in time, you have to determine that like, we are going to be the ones to break the cycle to break the curses. And so I love that. I want you to talk a little bit more about first re-anchor us and how much money you've raised for Resilia. But then I want you to talk to me about the challenges of raising that money. Um, again, most people, any entrepreneur is not raising the type of money that you've been successful at raising. Definitely not black people and definitely not black women. Right. right. So talk a little bit about the barriers that you were up against trying to raise that money. Oh, I mean, it's a long story, but I'm gonna keep it short. Um, so we raised over what we consider several finance rounds. Um, we raised a pre-seed round and something that you mentioned. Right. It was like you had built um, just an anchor from where you could jump from. And because I had built a company and the people kind of recognized me a little bit, they was like, all right, you've been successful. You might could go do something else, right? And so my pre-seed, that first angel round, people call it, you know, friends, family, and fools, right? Because that's that, that's that round, right, where you don't know where the money going to go. And good luck if you get it back because you really are betting on someone else. And so I raised about $400,000 in that round, right? And I was like, okay. You know, I was going out there with my pitch deck. You know, I had a very clear idea 
of what I wanted to continue to build. Now, this is after I had already invested a good bit of my own money to create what we consider an MVP, a minimum viable product, right? To actually show someone. So it wasn't no uh, white man experience where it's like, oh, I got this idea. Can you put $100 million in here? You're right. We starting bit by bit, piece by piece. Then I would go on and raise my seed round, which is, in my opinion, one of my hardest rounds that I've raised a little bit over $2 million. And I remember pitching here in New Orleans at Entrepreneur Week, and I lost the pitch competition. And I was like, man, I was really good. These white boys beat me out. And it was like, well, you know, you had your stuff together. You just seemed like you didn't need the money. When, what? <laughs> when did people not get funded because they look like they don't need the money? But just to be black and be so prepared and to be so good that you don't even look like you need the money, right? Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sorry, I'm drinking. But like... Because that one's so interesting for me because as black people, we are often taught um, that life is a meritocracy. Um, our parents raise us to believe that you have to work twice as hard to be half as good as anybody. But if you work that hard, it will pay off. And I think what we often see in our real life, real lived experiences is that that's not true. Here's someone who's saying, I was working twice as hard. I showed up to be 10 times as good as everybody in the room. They and said I was better. They said, and still wouldn't give me the money. How did that, like, how do you recover from that? Like, A, I want you to, like, tell me what that felt like in your soul. Like, I want to know, like, what um, like what did that feel like to get that response? Oh, I was pissed. Because, you know, you know, you guys, so you're like, God, this this like it was good i watched the other pitch i was like okay i got this and people came after me up to me i thought it was like sis you had that right and but what i did next was important and so during that pitch competition you actually had individuals who were coaching you and like mentoring you and i remember that monday i emailed each and every one of them and i just thanked them for helping me i said we didn't bring home you know First place, we didn't bring home any money because only one person won. But thank you for helping me. And one of the individuals responded back to me. And he was like, I really thought that your pitch was great. When you're ever in Silicon Valley, um, look me up and we'll go to lunch. Now, I'm running around trying to raise this money. You know, I'm at the very end. I don't think I'm going to make it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go on this, uh, go to this conference out in Silicon Valley. And I was like, hopefully I'm going to be able to meet some investors there. And, you know, I'm not in my, in my home ground, right? I'm not on my home turf. And so going out there, it's like, we don't really know you. So, but you got to go out there because you got to go get the money, right? And so something made me reach out to that individual who actually happened to be a partner at uh, TPG Capital, which is one of the largest private equity firms in the world. Now, first of all, I didn't think he was going to respond to me. He was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You had the great businesses and this. We're going to go to lunch together. And he ended up investing about $40,000 check into that round. And because of who he was, because of who this white man was, and because his name was on my cap table, it actually pulled in and created a gravitational pull of other investors on the cap table, and I was able to fill out my entire round. Okay. 
I got two questions I want to. So at this point in time, we've probably raised basically your first round was like four hundred thousand. Then you did two million. Um, I believe maybe last at some point in time during COVID, like I do a little of investing on the side. I always try to live out my values, so I invested in a black woman. And I believe the stat for her was that she was like the 91st black woman to raise a million dollars. Only 91. You can still count them under 100, which is crazy. Do you know what number you were? I was like around 15, 16. Yeah, I was like under 20. And the first in Louisiana. And the first in the South. And the first in the South. Um, yeah. So again, impressive. And so now you're saying so because I get connected to this partner or this person at TPG. Now I want you to talk us through um, just double click into what you just did, which is he's the one that then again opens up the floodgates. Yeah. But you had to do work. So first you get him to invest. Now, how do you open up the floodgates to everybody else based on um, this person's investment in your company and belief in you? And so I essentially one, he made additional introductions to me. Um, and then the investors who I went back to, I said, oh, well, look who just invested. And he said, I'll also serve as a reference for you. So if you need me to pick up the phone and call someone and say, this is why I invested, I'll do that too. And even if you take a step back, had I not followed up, right, from the pitch competition that I lost to say just thank you, right, just a simple thank you, and that follow-up being up so important, none of that even would have happened, Right. And so that was really the fire that lit the rest of my round. And I was like, okay, I can do this. Now I got some, you know, gas back in my tank. Uh, We started building, using the money, right? Putting it to use, growing the company. And we did. And it set us up for our next round, which would be our Series A, which we raised over close to about $9.5 million for. Okay. So now I just want to. Walk me through. So at this point in time, you've raised probably 12, 13 million. Today, how much money have you raised? We've raised about 48 million. 48 million dollars, which is incredible. And again, she's number 15. So number 15 got to $50 million. These are people who are breaking the ceilings and disrupting things for the rest of us to come follow behind. Um, Okay, so now you've got, you've raised almost $50 million. You're on startup number two. Are you... Is this the one and are you finished or what's the next mountaintop? So we were talking about this idea, this concept where entrepreneurship is hard, right? Like it's brutal and it it beats you down and I don't care how successful you ever become, right? And in my head, I'm thinking like, okay, I think this might be it for me, right? I feel like I'm going to get this to a place and then I'm going to go sell off into the sunset. And for me... Now my, my mindset has kind of shifted and you were talking about this and I was like, I think I got one more big startup in me. Which I think is, which I think is incredible because I feel like I have none left. <laughs> I'm not even going <laughs> to lie. The dynamic, right? <laughs> I'm not even going to lie. It's like, um, I love Revolt. I am here for a reason. I would be nowhere else in the world, but I do also hope that this is the last time that I have, then I'll be operating a company. Now, God will tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Again, like she's in a different seat. And so as I go through my journey, but if you were to ask me today, this is the last one. And so then to meet someone who's done it not once, but twice, and is still saying, I might have one more left in me. What is the why behind? Why one more? Yeah. So one thing I think that no one ever tells like black founders or black business owners is that 
you can do multiple ventures, right? You can create something. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, you can move on and do something else, right? You're not stuck to one thing. Um, you have uh, white men who go on and they launch, successfully launch, sell, uh, start a new company, fail in that company, lose some, invest the money on the next company, start a new company, sell that company. And it's literally like rinse and repeat. They do it multiple times. Sometimes they remain the CEO. Sometimes they bring in another CEO and just kind of like work from the backdrop. And so when I think about that being um, in my seat, Oftentimes, we are so connected to our company where we will ride that ship. We will drown on that ship, right? We will drown with it and really feel like it is our life, like it is who we are truly in and out. And I think as I've grown over time and I, as I've become into my own as a serial entrepreneur and truly a builder first, I'm a builder first, I think about what could I do today Knowing what I know now from my failures, from my successes, from my wins, and from my losses, uh, with the resources that I have today, right? The network that I've created. When I think back eight, nine years ago when I first started, I didn't have any of that. And so if you can make your own rules the next time around, would you go and do it? And so that's kind of the mentality that I'm in. And you're in a good, you know, you're in a good seat. So you you kind of creating the world that you envision. A hundred percent, which is my next question for you, which is you talked about being a builder, and I think that there's often kind of two types of builders. There are some people who are building businesses for whatever reason, for building, for business sake, for generating wealth, et cetera. But it's like, what I want to get to is like how you build the business. So are you building businesses? Because the other one to me is like people who are willing businesses to be what they want them to be. I watch Sean Combs every day. That man wills the businesses to be what he wants them to be. I just watched Elon Musk buy Twitter, and I'm watching this man will this thing to be with this man is not worried about what y'all want he's not worried about how much racism or hate talk is like he is like i am changing this thing and this is what it is going to be for the future he is clearly trying to shift the algorithm in this world through this business and so my question for you is do you see yourself as a biz as a builder of businesses or are you willing these businesses to be something that other people may not see or understand oh we definitely willing the businesses to be right and even when I first started out, so so often we think that the title is like, you know, I have to be the CEO, the founder, you know, I'm the person doing all these different things. And now I'm not even so tied with the title, right? I don't have to be the CEO, right? I can help operate and take all my experience, all of my knowledge and let someone else go be the CEO and support them helping to grow this idea and this concept. And we're going to get there 10 times faster because we're able to really hone in on all of my experiences and then also try to pull my resources and my network. And I can put that behind some young, new, up-and-coming CEO that's going to take it to greater heights. And so that's kind of the mentality that I am in and like where I'm at for what's going to be my, my next thing. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Yeah, before I open it up to the audience, I, I want to see if I can get to this question because um, 
in your story, there's a lot of what, what we would see as like giving up control. Mm-hmm. So what you just talked about is how a lot of us get into that. We're a founder and CEO, and we refuse to get rid of that CEO, right? Even though there might be someone better out there who can do it. You also, there's a clear difference between the first company in which you bootstrap and then the other one where you give away, where you get capital. But in yes. order to get capital, you have to give away, away equity, equity, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm watching your journey, and it's there's one story that's like, are you giving up more and more control? Mm-hmm. or like what is the story as it relates to yeah, control of your businesses and the seat that you're comfortable sitting in? Yeah, so you have to decide for you in this instance when you think about do you want to just build a lifestyle business or do you want to build a, a bootstrap company where you have complete say-so of what happens day in, day out um, or are you building a company that's going to be grossly scalable? Right. In which you need to take on investor capital, because when you start taking on investor capital, it changes the dynamics and it also changes the control that you actually have on the day to day. Right. And so even how I'm thinking about my next company and the type of capital that I may or may not take will be different. Right. Because I understand now today what I didn't understand yesterday about the type of partners I want to work with. Right. The people that are going to be with you through thick and thin, we're going to make a way, right? We're going to wheel this thing one way or the other. We're going to wheel this thing to the top. And every every day might not be a good day, but we here and we in it. And we're here for a purpose and for a reason. And we are on the same page about that. Those are the type of investors you take investor capital that you want to have. And if you don't, you got to create a team. That also is connected like that, right? That you don't have to, you're not reporting to boards or investors, Drew. You you are always accountable to someone. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Um, I love this idea about identifying partners that have true shared values. You know, we speak a lot at Revolver often in the media and like I'm always telling people who the hell we are and what we are here to do because I don't want anybody to come find me trying to do something that's different. We are very far from the dream and the goal that we have in mind. And I'm only interested in finding partners who believe in that vision, who believe in that mission, and are willing to sign up and, and, and help us get there. So I love that story. Hi, Savitri and Otavio. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fantastic. Um, Savitri, you mentioned that you were a first-generation college attendee and graduate. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that experience and how that um, shaped you into the businesswoman you are today how it's connected to your legacy as an entrepreneur, and yeah, just what are your thoughts on that? So I will say I was very green, right? Everything was so new to me, um, as new as me breaking into tech, right? And so when I stepped on to my college campus as a first-generation college student, I was like, okay, where are the people like me? That was like the first thing I thought about. Who's like me that's here? And then I, we created like a tribe around that. And so I did feel like some comfort to know that there are people around me and resources around me for first-generation college students. Um, and then from there, I'm like, okay, now I need to be at the table with other people and learn from their experiences, right? Because I think it's one thing to be comfortable, but it's also important to get uncomfortable. And being a first-generation college student made me really uncomfortable in a lot of new places that I was being invited into or not invited into, right? Um, And so I think for anyone that is a first-generation college student, you're thinking, like, where do I start? Uh, the, The goal is to start somewhere, 
but it's also to ensure the people around you, right, have that same mindset and that uh, long-term trajectory of like, okay, we're going to get through this together. We, we might not have come from um, multiple generations of college. Uh, you know, I think Robert F. Smith said that he's a fifth-generation college. I was like, fifth? Yeah, Can a black person, a ma- how is this possible? <laughs> like, we had, we, I was literally, I literally went and mapped it out. I was like, how is it possible? I never actually heard a black man say that they're a fifth generation college student. That was like amazing to me. But, you know, kudos to, you know, his family keeping it going. That was not my story. <laughs> and so it was a different type of experience, but a good one and one I wouldn't change for the world. How do you make sure that you consistently pour into yourself, mm-hmm. especially at times of grief? Like, what is your black print for making sure that you're good? Yeah. Um, so grief comes in so many different ways um, from grieving death, like I have talked about, but also you can think about the time that individuals spent grieving the loss of normalcy during the pandemic, right? People had to grieve their former lives and deal with that. And many people were like very depressed behind it um, and dealt with it in different ways. I think for me, I always think something back to something that my pastor would say. Um, And he would say, the way you deal with disappointment is going to change and alter the trajectory of your life. And so it's about, you know, man, why didn't I get the job? Why did I get the promotion? Why did my mother have to die? Right. Like, how are you dealing with that? Um, And how do you express that outwardly to other people? And I've always tried to figure out, like, whether that be talking to my friends or my husband or talking to my therapist. Right. I got all all the things right to deal with that, because it's something that even when you least expect it can hit you at any time, like a memory, you know, you walking down a certain street um, Christmas time. And so I'm very conscious of how grief can really impede on your success, but also on your happiness and your joy. My last question for you is, is there any advice that you want to give the listeners, the people in this room? Is there any story you want to tell that you didn't get to tell today? I want to make sure that this is your story. We're going to close it out the way you want to close it out. Is there anything else you want to say before we close down? Yeah, I'm going to say just two things. The first one is when commitment and your urge to want to do something fails, ensure that discipline kicks in. Like being disciplined to just do it, to will your way through it, is going to be the key to your success. Uh, the second thing, and I told him I'm going to quote Beyonce because she on tour and I can't wait to see her on the stop, <laughs> is that if my country ass can do it, you can do it too. Yeah. And that's real. <laughs> mic drop. My, my mic dropped. Okay, here we go. <laughs> mic drop moment. If her country ass can do it, there's no excuse. Savitra, Wilson, Taylor, thank you for being here. Thank you for blessing us with um, your presence, your genius, all that you are. Um, an incredible story. Some Someone who has dealt with tremendous loss growing up. Someone who is, again, like as I thought about your story, it's like against all odds. You have defied all odds. Um, number, you know, 15th black woman in the world to raise over a million dollars. Woman's raised $50 million today. Like, yeah, let's give it up to this woman who has done the impossible despite what's going on. Thank you for being here.
Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.